0: Back to the Tasty Morsels of Critical Care podcast, continuing along a theme of words with too many letter I's in them, see Tasty Morsels of Critical Care number 7 for more. Today we look at necrotizing fasciitis or neck fasciitis to its friends. What clinical signs might help us to diagnose this? So we could look for necrotic skin, bullous changes, dishwater coloured drainage from loose bulla or from the tissue, Uh, everyone's favourite poop or pain out of proportion. You can look for crepitus um, and think about it in people with diabetes, immunosuppression, with lines inside your water exposure. We'll come back to that when we look at risk factors. The other thing I find useful to think about over the years is when you ever you see a cellulitis with hypotension or a cellulitis that's needing ICU admission, then you should be strongly considering necrotizing fasciitis as a diagnosis that you just haven't found yet. Many of you will have heard of the Lurinic score, L-R-I-N-E-C score, and you can find it on MDCalc. But like many of these scores for uncommon critical illnesses, it's not that useful for making decisions, but does highlight some of the features that should prompt you to think about it. You can diagnose this clinically, or you can use plain film, ultrasound, CT, or God help us all, MRI scanning. And I don't mean that MRI isn't good, it's just that any time you combine time-dependent surgical diagnosis with MRI, you're really going to be running into difficulties. So first among the lesser-known facts about necrotizing fasciitis comes the fact that it's split into various types. Four. Uh, to be precise. So type 1 describes a polymicrobial affa- infection, affecting the trunk, perineum, um, typically in poorly controlled diabetics. Type 2, neck fascia, describes monomicrobial infection, which is usually some form of beta hemolytic strep, mainly affecting the limbs of usually fairly normal patients. Uh, once we get into the weird and wonderful, we're into type 3, where you have clostridial clustril- infections or gram-negative infections, possibly even vibrio, um, can affect the limbs, trunk, perineum, and can be associated with trauma or water exposure. Type 4 neck fascia uh, describes candida neck fascia, typically in the immunosuppressed as you might expect. Obviously, types 1 and 2 are what we see most of, and there are some identifiable risk factors for necrotizing fasciitis, but remember in type 2 infections, these are mainly uh, group based strep, these people often have no risk factors at all. So this list is more relevant for the other types of neck fascia. You can look at diabetes, alcohol misuse, peripheral vascular disease, renal failure, recent surgery or trauma, malignancy or immunosuppression, injection drug use, and varicella zoster virus or chickenpox. It is unusual, but it is a well-described risk factor in kids, which I have seen and missed on a number of occasions. If you weren't already aware, then a key take-home point is that surgical debridement is of the essence here. Surgery involves removing everything where the fascia pulls away when it's not meant to. Generally, a second look at twenty-four to forty-eight hours to see if there's any progression is a good idea. Medical treatment um, lies more in our domain as the intensivist looking after the, pa- the patient, and antibiotics are going to be the mainstay. And recommendations here will vary by country and by hospital. So, for example, my current hospital's empiric recommendations are benzyl penicillin and flucloxacillin, ciprofloxacin, gentamicin, and clindamycin. MRSA is actually relatively uncommon here, so simple penicillins uh, are often fine. Clindamycin is typically used as it inhibits protein synthesis, and in this case it's going to inhibit toxins being produced by the bacteria and might help out with the septic shock. It is worth noting there's no high-level data supporting this. I've also heard similar physiological reasoning for Lineslid against the staph uh, PVL toxin um, in this regard. IVIG is frequently given again with little data supporting and the IDSA guidelines makes no recommendation on IVIG and the World Federation of Emergency Surgeons gives very weak recommendation to consider its use. Hyperbaric oxygen is much more complicated to deliver in the crashing critically ill patient and it is not recommended by the IDSA. So for some further reading and references and rationalisations you can go to Tasty Morsels of Emergency Medicine number 12 uh, O's Intensive Care Manual chapter 72 and there's some guidelines from the IDSA first author Stevens in 2014 and the World Society of Emergency Surgery Guidelines as lead author being Sartelli in 2014 also thanks again for listening and speak to you again soon <laughs>